0: Once again, I'd like to express my appreciation for uh, the brethren here, inviting us to come and be with you, and that you not only would invite, but that as we come together, that you'd be here. I know there's a lot of things that you could be doing throughout this week, uh, other than being here together, worshiping with God's people and giving attention to His Word, but to put the spiritual things first. It's, it's encouraging to see people who are willing to do that continually. And I'm very thankful for the presence of each and everyone who are here <clears throat> this morning. There's a passage in Luke chapter 20 where we find a group of people who, who are not right. They're not right with God. Their heart is not right. Yet yeah, they ask a question that's a its a good question. We find from time to time in God's Word where men who are not faithful men, they're not godly men, but occasionally they'll say something that what they said is right. I always like Ahab. I don't like Ahab. I don't like the things that Ahab did. But on one occasion when Ahab was being threatened by the syrians ahab sent a reply and said let not he who puts his armor on boast as he who takes it off and i love that i love that quotation Uh, now abraham abraham ahab didn't have faith as the prophet went on to tell ahab you're going to lead the battle you're going to defeat the Syrians, uh, we, we see that Ahab didn't follow up on his statement some seemingly of faith, but, but it was a good statement. In Luke chapter 20, we find something similar here where you have these scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests and the elders, that, that group of Jewish leaders who were constantly trying to find some fault in Jesus as he went about teaching. And in verse 2 of Luke chapter 20, they say, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? That was not a bad question in and of itself. We need to know something about authority and, and where the authority is found for the things that we do. And so, Jesus in his response, don't take it that Jesus is saying here by his response that this is an unimportant question. Jesus rather is saying this is a question I've already answered, and this is a question that you're really not interested in. But before we get to the title of the lesson and the text that we're going to spend most of our time talking about this morning from heaven or from men. Uh, we do want to give some attention to that question that was asked of Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? When we're looking at the question of authority, we're looking at, as as Mark mentioned as he's reading there from Colossians 3, in the name of, by the authority of, we need authority for what we're doing. And Jesus, here in Luke chapter 20, toward the very end of His earthly ministry, has been all along answering that question of by what authority he did the things that he did. We're going to look at a number of passages, and we're going to be in John. We're going to look at beginning in John chapter 5. If you're of mind to, to write in your Bibles, I think it may be good just to to make a note by each of these verses, maybe pointing to the next verse. When you're talking with people about authority and, and the need for authority, uh, I really believe this is one of the, the best places to go, to show that Jesus Himself understood something about being under authority and how that authority is established. And we begin here in, in John chapter 5 and verse 19. Where Jesus says most assuredly I say to you the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do for whatever He does the Son also does in like manner. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says the Son can do no thing apart from that which the Father has shown Him. Now, when you... Go on over to chapter 6 and verse 38. You have Jesus making this statement. John chapter 6 verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You continue over into chapter 7 and verse 16 where Jesus says, My doctrine is not mine, but His who sent me. Chapter 8 and verse 28, Jesus says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of Myself, but as My Father taught Me, I speak these things. Chapter 9 and verse 4, I must work the works of Him who sent Me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Chapter 10 and verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And then if you turn on over to chapter 12 and verse 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Now, we we need to spend more time in each of those verses and, and, and really seeing all that Jesus says concerning how it is He is giving Himself entirely to the will of God and how He comes to know the will of God. I think the first passage we look at in chapter 5, verse 19, and this last one here in John 12, verse 49, really sums it up. The things that He's seen in the Father, the things that He has heard from the Father, that that really encompasses everything that we can be given to understand the will of anybody, including our Heavenly Father. And the point here is this. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if He says that He could do nothing apart from what the Father has shown Him or what the Father had told Him, those things which are the revealed will of His Father, then who are we? To think that we could go outside of those things. That we don't have to have the authority from God for what we're doing. That if as long as we we feel this is the right thing, as long as it makes sense to us, well then that'd be okay. Well Jesus didn't claim that. And so we shouldn't either. So when we're going to continue on here this morning to talk about whether something is from heaven or from men... It has to be under this umbrella of those things which are authorized by God. That's how we'll know whether something is from heaven or from men. It's not just going to be merely because it seems heavenly, it seems spiritual, it seems like a good thing to us. It's going to be from heaven when we can show from God's Word that God has shown us or God has told us or a combination of the two that this is His will, and that we should carry that that out. The area that we're going to to take and apply this, and and it can be applied to anything when we're talking about from heaven or from men. Not only can it be applied to everything, it has to be applied to everything that we do. But this morning, kind of as our test case, we're going to use baptism as an example of how we look at something and evaluate it and see is that from heaven, or is it from men? Uh, we didn't just pull baptism out of the air. Back in Luke chapter 20, uh, that's, that's what Jesus asked these Jewish leaders who were questioning Him. That's what He asked them to look at. Back over in Luke chapter 20, we read verse 2. Uh, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, or, or who is He who gave you this authority? Jesus' response in verse 3, But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, as we've already stated, Jesus had already shown them by what authority. He had already told them where He had gotten His authority. But in this case, He's not going to specifically answer them on this occasion because they've shown themselves not to be honest people who are truly seeking the truth. When we look at John the Baptist and the baptism of John the Baptist, is the question too difficult to answer? Are the people here, when they give that response in verse 7, or oh, we don't know. Was it because they couldn't know? Is it because the baptism of John was just kind of mysterious? You've got this man out in the wilderness, and we don't know where he came from, and he's doing these things, and we don't know why he's doing them. Was that the case? Well when you look at their response we find that no, it wasn't because the question itself was hard to answer it's because they, the way that they were going about trying to answer it made it difficult because they were concerned about the circumstances they were concerned about what's going to happen if we answer this way and what's going to happen if we answer that way You see that again in verse 5, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, then all these people over here, they might stone us because they think John was a a prophet. So they're just simply looking at the consequence of their answer, and they decide that either way, we're in trouble. So we'll just say we don't know. But people do the same thing type of thing today as they're reading through and reasoning through the scriptures and they they come to a passage and they recognize that if if i take this and i go this way with it well that's going to that's going to put me here i don't want to be here but now if i take it this other way well that's going to put me over here i don't want to be there and so we'll just we'll just act like well we just can't know well no we can know the lord was very clear and john was answered John, the answer to John's baptism, whether it was from heaven or from men, was very clear. Look back with me in in Luke chapter 3. So if we're trying to answer today the question that Jesus asked them, the baptism of John, is it from heaven or from men? Well, then we can turn to a passage like Luke chapter 3. And in verse 2, it says, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, and then he quotes there from Isaiah. So can we use this passage to see that there is an answer to the question? When he says, verse 2, the word of God came to John, and then verse 3, he went. Verse 4, as it is written. Well, that, that pretty well tells us the baptism of John was from heaven, it was from God. God had revealed himself by Gabriel to Zacharias back in Luke chapter 1, telling what he was going to do. And you say, well, maybe they weren't privy to the information that Zacharias had. Well, after Zacharias could speak, he spoke. And he told about the things that God had done, but they could go back to the book of Malachi and see what God had promised. And if they were willing to open their eyes and see, they could clearly answer, yes, the baptism of John was from heaven. We haven't submitted to it. We've been wrong. We want to correct that. And they could have done that, but they didn't. They persisted in their ignorance and said, we don't know. Sometimes as you're reading through the Scriptures, you can just kind of envision the way the conversation goes. And the way I see those Jewish leaders, it reminds me of kids, and I was one myself once, when you're asked something by your parents and you know you're in trouble and you know it doesn't matter what you're going to say that you're going to be in trouble and so you just kind of give that shrug of the shoulders like, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. And that's the way I see these these Jewish leaders. But we can do the same thing. But ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance will condemn us to hell if we pretend like we can't know when the scriptures have clearly revealed to us the Lord's will on a matter. So as we continue to look at the subject of baptism, I want to look at a, a different baptisms of today. And that might sound strange to some, like, what do you mean different baptisms of today? Well, there are a number of different baptisms today. And we want to look at them, and we want to try to to see whether or not those baptisms that are practiced today are truly from heaven or from men. First one we're going to look at is Holy Spirit baptism. And and I have Holy Spirit baptism today because we're not questioning whether or not Holy Spirit baptism was from heaven or from men. We're questioning whether or not someone who claims Holy Spirit baptism today, uh, is that from heaven or from men? Well, If you look over in Acts chapter 1, we have uh, some, some promises made by Jesus and we see there in verse 5 that he says, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then, as you look over in chapter 2, you find that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when we're trying to figure out questions concerning the Holy Spirit baptism, we want to know who was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Here in this passage, who were the recipients of that baptism? Well, according to men, this is Albert Barnes. Albert Barnes has written commentary on, on the Bible. And his notes are pretty easy to find. And, and he has some, some decent things to say about certain places. But concerning Acts 1.15, he says, or actually concerning um, the verse 4 of chapter 2, and they were all filled he says it's probably not only the apostles, but also the 120 mentioned in Acts one fifteen. That's what Albert Barnes says. Adam Clark, another commentator, says, It is probable that the all here mentioned means the 120 spoken of in Acts 1 and verse 15. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to sit down with some, some preachers and some other denominations around where we are, or various denominations not other denominations and we were going through the book of acts and we got to this passage and and there were several there who contended that this was the 120 i said well let's let's just look back you know just let's just go back it says and they verse 4 so if we want to figure out who they were let's just back up you know who's being considered here well the last thing said in chapter 1 verse 26 They cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And then chapter 2, verse 1, they were all with one accord in one place. And verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, wouldn't it make sense that that would refer to the apostles that had been mentioned in the previous verse? And if you back up to Acts chapter 1, we read verses 5 and 8 earlier. Who was Jesus talking to there? Well, in verse 3, Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, to whom, I'm sorry, let's back up to verse 2. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. And so, as you look at that first section, well, Jesus is talking to the apostles. That's who the promise is given. We could go back to Acts chapter 14, 15, and 16, and see some similar promises there made to the apostles. But you come back to chapter 2, and this is. Again, in this study that I'm having, and they're contending it's 120, I'm I'm trying to show all of this from Scripture that it seems the apostles are the ones who are uh, in view here. Uh, You come on down in chapter 2, in verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. So it's, it's the twelve apostles who are standing up, who are teaching in those languages of those who had been gathered together. You come on over and uh, verse 37, after Peter and the apostles had preached the gospel, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Why the emphasis on the apostles in chapter 2? Why are they being addressed? Well, because they are the ones who were speaking. They are the ones who had the gifts of the tongues. So after presenting all of that, I looked at them. I said, well, what do you think? And the one guy who had just recently come out of the seminary said, well, I still believe it's the 120. What evidence? What scripture? Where do you see the 120? Well, he didn't have an answer for that. There was was no Scripture other than to say in verse 15 there was 120 numbered with the disciples. But there's nothing else in the context of either chapter that would point to Holy Spirit baptism being received by the 120. There's everything else in these two chapters to show that it was the apostles. So the teachings of man would say, well, it's probable that it was the 120. And notice that both of these commentators use that word, probably, probable. And the reason is because they can't prove it. There's no verse. There's nothing they can go to and say concretely, this was something that was poured out on the 120. The Bible, as we've already looked at, and we could look at other passages as well, would show that this Holy Spirit baptism was something that was uh, received by the apostles. So when we look at One other occasion when we do find the Holy Spirit coming upon a group of people, it's in Acts chapter 10. It's after the preaching of Peter to the household of Cornelius in verse 44 of chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So, Cornelius' house, they receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And some would point to this and say, well, see, just as they received it, we receive it today. But when you go on over into chapter 11, you find that there was a purpose for this baptism of the Spirit upon the household of Cornelius. Peter and those with him are questioned when they come back to Jerusalem. What are you all doing over there with these Gentiles? Well, and by the way, that really was a good question from those in Jerusalem at this time because it had not yet been revealed by God that the gospel, the door to salvation had been opened to the Gentiles. And and so I believe they're right to question what Peter and the others had done. So Peter answers and we'll begin in verse 12 where Peter says the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. We entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, "Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved." And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word that the Lord, the word of the Lord, how He said, "John indeed baptized with water." but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. This was a new thing for Gentiles now to be received into the family of God. How would God let people know that, yes, this is according to my will. This is what I want to be done. Now, obviously, there were many prophecies concerning the Gentiles being brought in to the family of God and receiving salvation in Christ. But the time frame, when would it happen? When would it occur? How do we know that that door is now open? Well, God had revealed it somewhat to Peter in that vision of the sheep. He also Uh, Told him to go to Cornelius' house, and then the sign that Cornelius and his house received with that baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Peter makes a distinction when you go back there in chapter 11 and see that he says in verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. He, He doesn't say the Holy Spirit fell on them as he does all believers who have come to be in Christ. But he's making a distinction about those in the beginning. Well, what was that? Well, that's back in chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit baptism was limited in scriptures. The only two occasions we find are on the apostles and on that first, those first Gentile converts as a sign from God that these people have kind of my stamp of approval. They have the authority to do what they're doing. That seems evident in chapter 2. It seems evident here in chapter 11. You say, well, that idea of seeming evident, that that seems kind of vague. We won't take the time right now, but go back and read chapter 10 and notice Peter's words when he's told some things and he's shown some things and he has some scripture to mix in there. And what Peter comes to the conclusion is is it it seems evident that this is the case. God shows no partiality. Uh, But that may be a, a lesson for another day. But Holy Spirit baptism, for those who would claim it for today that the Holy Spirit's coming upon them and causing them to speak in tongues, uh, that's not from heaven. We're not going to find anywhere else in Scripture where that happens. We're not going to find anywhere where that's promised to us today. That was a sign of confirmation from God for them at the time. And it's not for us today, and so that has to be for men. Well, infant baptism, that's a baptism that's popular. There's a a fellow by the name of Kevin DeYoung. He's a part of the Gospel Coalition. And this is a statement that you can find if you go to the Gospel Coalition's website and, and look for Kevin DeYoung. You'll find his statements. And in regard to infant baptism, he says, We baptize infants not out of superstition or tradition or because we like cute babies. We baptize infants because they are covenant children and should receive the sign of the covenant. Now... To some religious people, you know, that sounds good. But do we find that in Scripture? Is there anywhere that tells us that that children born into today's society, especially households that have father, mother who are Christians, that that those are covenant children who need to receive that sign of the covenant? Well, We'll answer that in a moment. He goes on to say, as he's arguing for uh, infant baptism... He says, one, the burden of proof rests on those who would deny children a sign that they had received for thousands of years. You know, I kind of question that. The burden of proof, if we're going to practice something in the name of the Lord, is on the one who's practicing the thing. Where is your proof that God has authorized the thing? So he goes on to say, if children were suddenly outside the covenant and were disallowed from receiving any sacramental sign, surely such a massive change and the controversy that would have ensued would have been recorded in the New Testament. Well, again, to some that might sound good, but the burden of proof is on him to show that it was in the New Testament anywhere to begin with. Not that something was removed, but that something something God had given. He goes on to say, number two... The existence of household baptisms is evidence that God still deals with households as a unit and welcomes whole families into the church to come under the lordship of Christ together. And he gives a number of passages there to show these household conversions. Well, there's no doubt when you go to those passages that are cited there that there are households who heard the gospel and responded in kind. But does that prove infant baptism? Let's look at Acts chapter 16, which is the passage he brings up with the Philippian jailer. And let's see what the Scriptures say concerning the jailer's house and how that conversion took place. So the jailer, you remember, after the jail has been opened up and he's ready to kill himself, Paul and Silas say, don't do that. We're all here. In verse 28, Uh, verse 29, he runs in. He falls down before Paul and Silas. In verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So a couple of things from this passage that we want to point out. When it says all his family, well, the word all generally means everybody, right? Unless there's something in the context that would limit that. Now, the Philippian jailer, we don't know. Were there babies in the house? Were there not babies in the house? I don't think it matters. I don't think we have to look at this passage and say, well, there were no infants in the household of the Philippian jailer because it says all his house were baptized and all his house believed and therefore he couldn't have had infants. I think the word all contextually would include those who could believe and render obedience to God and being baptized into Christ. But, but that is the, the thing that we have to notice. When Paul and Silas spoke, they didn't just speak to the jailer. They spoke to all his household. So then his family, all of them were baptized, having believed in God. Now, we got some young ones here. And I don't think anybody would believe that after this lesson that they're going to come to know who Jesus is and want to be immersed in water so that their sins can be washed away. But we wouldn't say that all the household wasn't present or all the household didn't respond. We just understand that those who were not able to did not. But everywhere that you read about baptism... In the New Testament, you read about those who were capable of believing. You read about those who had sins that needed to be addressed. You read about those who knowingly and in faith responded to the invitation to be baptized into Christ. So on each of these points, we're not going through and looking at everything that could be looked at. But we're just looking at enough to see man has a lot to say on certain things. And then you look at the Scriptures and what they say, and it's pretty easy to figure out rather quickly whether a thing is from heaven or from men. So infant baptism, well, that's from men. We don't read about it anywhere in the New Testament, not as a covenant sign, not as a part of a household conversion. Those who are going to be baptized in order to be saved must also believe. So what about confessional or symbolic baptism? Now, what I'm talking about there is what is put forth by many. Um, I took this statement from the Southern Baptist Convention's website. I'm not trying to pick on the Southern Baptist Convention or any particular group when I, when I note what they say. I'm just trying to define what, what others are saying about particular things. And so here in regard to baptism, if you look at the Southern Baptist Convention's website, they will say that Christian, or they do say that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. That sounds pretty good. I, I don't know that I find a lot of fault with that. I think when you look at what is taught in the Scriptures, there, there's some symbolism there. I mean, when, when we go under that water, there's not a literal burial in the sense of like a cemetery burial, but it's symbolic of a burial. And so, yeah, that sounds really good. There's another place on this website that talks about the Southern Baptist Convention's entities, the other arms of the organization. And one of those arms... Is the North American, uh, the North American Mission Board, NAMB, and when you go, you follow that link. They've got more to say about baptism and the Church of Christ. And here's one of the things that I found on their site: While baptism is important, it is not necessary for salvation. The biblical passage. Passages quoted by the churches of Christ to argue for the necessity of water baptism do not prove their point. And so here we begin to see that distinction being made. While that first quote would seem like, oh, well, we're in agreement, this follows up to show, no, we're not in agreement. They're looking at baptism as as completely symbolic or uh, something of a confession made about what has already happened earlier, not what is taking place at the time. So when we talk about a symbolic or confessional baptism, we're talking about what sometimes is commonly referred to as an outward sign of an inward grace that has already been received. So they go on to talk about Acts 2.38 and say that, that it can mean that one is baptized because his or her sins have already been forgiven, Acts 2.38 does not prove the necessity of water baptism for salvation. The interesting thing is, and you hear this a lot by those who contend that baptism is not necessary. I'm sure there's one out there by now because you go to bed tonight and you wake up tomorrow, there's going to be another translation of the Bible out there. But if you look at any translation that has any credibility at all, And I think you can be real loose with that description. I have not found one yet that renders Acts 2.38 with the word because. I've not found any that would say be baptized because your sins have already been forgiven. And I just think that's telling. that They tell us all along, well it can mean this, it can mean this, but those who would have a reason to want to translate the verse in that way, they don't translate it that way. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's not true. That, that's not a rendering of that passage. And even if it were to the point where you say, well, it could be either or, there's enough in the Scriptures to show us that, well, given that you could define it this way or that way, what are we going to do? Well, look at all the other passages that are spoken concerning Baptism. That helps define Acts 2.38. So when we're looking at what the Scriptures teach concerning baptism, there's no denying that it's symbolic. But the question is, is it symbolizing something that is currently happening as one is being baptized? Or is it symbolic of something that has already taken place? We'll look at a number of passages with me, and I know you're familiar with these, but it's always good to turn and put our eyes on it. Be familiar. In Mark chapter 16, after Jesus has given the command for them in verse 15 to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, He follows that with verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Well, if you look on over into Acts 22, we've already mentioned Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. But look in Acts 22 and verse 16, and by the way, Acts 22:16 is regarding a man, and you can go back to Acts chapter nine and see this, who has seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. He's been in Damascus for three days fasting and praying. Now, if you're talking about someone who has faith in Jesus, well, Paul has faith in, or at this point, Saul of Tarsus has faith in Jesus. He he even on the road to Damascus said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord gave him a command. He goes and does it. And so he's fasting, he's praying, he has belief. But in Acts 22 and verse 16, as Paul is recounting his conversion, this is what Ananias said to him when he came to Damascus in verse 14. The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know His will and see the just one and hear the voice of His mouth. For you will be His witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. And that says a lot. If baptism is symbolic of what has already happened, why would Ananias say, wash away your sins? Why would he not say, be baptized so that others can see that your sins have been washed away? That's not what he says. He says, arise and be baptized, washing Away your sins, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. First Peter chapter three or Galatians chapter three. Let's go there first. You know, sometimes and I've preached lessons before and I've heard people preach lessons where you have a topic and and somebody go to a concordance and oh we're going to find every passage there is on this topic. And they just read passage after passage after passage after passage, and you think, "We got it, <laughs> yeah, we got it." And and I'm, I I I agree. There's sometimes we just overkill, and we don't have to go to a hundred passages to see what you could see in three. But this is a this is a a topic that you're going to need to go to a lot of passages with some people to show them a pattern that continues to be shown throughout. We're not looking at one verse and twisting a text. We're not trying to mess with the word order. We're not, it's just consistent all the way through. And we're not looking at every passage concerning baptism. We're just looking at some. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ... You have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you're baptized into Christ, if that's when you put on Christ, well, what was going on before that? You were outside of Christ. You didn't have Christ on. On over in we could look at Romans six. We're not going to look at that this morning, but we are going to look at 1 Peter chapter three, verse twenty one. It says, there's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, back in the book of Colossians. Earlier, you remember a statement that was made concerning infant baptism and this idea of a sign of a covenant. He's not completely wrong in talking about baptism as a sign of a covenant. But Colossians 2 here tells us something about that sign and how it's applied. And so Colossians 2 and verse 11, In him that is in Christ you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, what is that? I I need that circumcision, right? I need to put off that body of sins. I need this which would bring me into that covenant relationship with God. What is it? Verse 12, Buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith and the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So, we can hear what other people say about why Mark 6.16 doesn't mean what it seems to say to me. And we can read how people say, well, Acts 2.38, well, you're getting that wrong. That word could mean because. And they'll say with 1 Peter 3.21, well, that's a symbolic baptism. That's, that's spirit baptism. And with each of these passages, they've got something that they're going to try to say, well, it doesn't quite seem to mean what it, what it really means. But when you line it all up, and you're asking yourself the question, you know, the idea is baptism just symbolic of the salvation that already occurred when I had faith in Christ when I first believed? Well, there's nothing in Scripture to support that. There's all kinds of commentators that are all kind of men and women that would tell you that's what it is. But the scriptures show that the idea of a, an outward sign of an inward grace that that is from men. You're not going to find that in scriptures. Nowhere. Nothing that sounds like it. What you will find is baptism for unto to bring about the remission of our sins. And at this point, we don't need to take the time to go and look at additional passages. We just read a number of them that if we look at with honest hearts, we'll understand If we want to be in Christ, if we want to have our sins washed away, if we want to receive the the forgiveness of sins, if we want to be saved, then we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ by His authority because that is from heaven. That's where that one's from. And so, I don't know when we stand before the Lord in judgment how that's all going to, to play out. But, I can imagine that there would be some, just as when Jesus asked those Jewish leaders in Luke chapter 20, the baptism of John, what do you think about it? Is that from heaven or from men? Well, they didn't answer because they knew either way they answered, they had not submitted to it, they had not believed in it, they were going to be condemned. But when we stand before the Lord in judgment, You think there might be some, he'd ask that question. Well, what about the baptism of Jesus Christ? Is that from heaven or from men? And there'll be a lot of people that don't want to answer that question. Or they'll want to say, well, we thought, or or, I was told this, but if we're convinced, and we should be if we read through and see how the New Testament tells us that we can be saved, that the baptism of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins is from heaven, have you submitted to that baptism? If you haven't, why not? It's the only way that we can be in Christ. It's the only way we can have our sins washed away. And as we looked in Acts 22 and verse 16, when Ananias said, Why, why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We invite you to do that very thing here this morning. If you're not a child of God and you've not, you've not submitted to the baptism from God, that's given by His authority, by which one must be saved, then please do that this morning while you have the opportunity. If we can help you in any way, let us know by, while we stand and sing. Are the gentle voice of Jesus.